Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. All right. Then uh, going back to the grand story. So I know I keep putting this graphic up here and I'll keep putting it up there because there are key themes in here that we just want to get through. And once we're through them, not get through in a bad way either, in an exciting way, it's going to change the way you read scripture. And I know sometimes we get this like, well, do I have to know everything in here and have it memorized? No. Do you need to know all the details of the grand story in order to be saved? No. It's not gonna, there's not a, you know, a question-answer period at the gates of heaven, and we make sure that you have all of your, you know, your answers in line with the questions. It's not a quiz. There's not a test. It's by faith. It's by grace through faith that you are saved, uh, faith in Christ Jesus that you're saved. But there's this side of we're, we're here for God's purposes. We're here on purpose and for purpose, and we're here to know God. I mean, he's displayed himself, and if we want to know him, if we truly do love him and if we have received that gift of salvation by faith, then it should be reflected in our attitudes towards our desire to get to know about him and to get to, get to know him. In the same way that when you have a best friend or a spouse or someone that you care about, you seek to spend time with them, you seek to know them. So I just, I want to challenge how we look at it. This isn't about getting all the answers right, a test that you're going to get in heaven, but it is about getting to know the main character, God, to know about him and getting to know him more. Make sense? Okay, so that's what we talked about last week. We, we went over a bunch of things, uh, but I referred to it kind of like a script, like a movie or a story would be played out and, and said, this is a living, it's live action. I mean, the, the, the Bible was written 4,000 years ago, well, started 4,000 years ago, um, but then, then carried on the last 2,000 years, or 2,000 years ago. But anyways, written over a 2,000 year span, primarily, and what you see is it, it tells us the story of creation all the way through to where we are now, and then it tells us what's to come. So we get a part to play. This, this story isn't finished. It's finished in the sense of God knows how it ends. We're told how it ends, but it's not finished in the sense of each of us here have a part to play. There is not a person sitting here today or listening online that doesn't have purpose and a part to play in this script. And that, to me, has just blown my mind the last couple of weeks as I've been meditating on that. Just to think about the benevolence and grace of God that he would actually invite us into his grand story. It's all about him. Existence is all about him. Everything we do is supposed to glorify him. It's all about him. And yet he partners with us, or he calls us to partner with him. And I think that's pretty incredible. So there are four chapters. We've talked creation, fall, redemption, restoration. There are five promises, the Edenic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and the New Covenant. And then there's one hero, Jesus. And that's what I really want to drill in. Four themes, five promises. There's more than five promises, but five main promises. There's one hero, Jesus, and it's all moving towards the ultimate climax, the redemption and restoration of all things. So that's incredible. We looked at... Some of the other reasons we, we should want to know uh, last week, and you'll see I put four new ones on there. We won't dive into each one of them today, uh, but, but a lot of them will be answered as we go throughout the series. Um, the, the script reveals the main character. We can know about God and know God himself. The script guards us from deception, reveals truth, helps us understand key doctrines. Uh, it's the foundation for a biblical worldview. More on this today. We're going to finish that off today. But it also shows us how God is involved with creation, history, nations, and today. He wasn't just like involved in some pieces and some people think then he's absent, like an absent father and he sits back and just lets it all play out. That is not true. 
He is actively involved. He has been from the beginning. He is actively involved today, and he wants us to be actively involved today too. Okay, so that's important. Uh, The script shows us what will happen in the end of the age. That we'll get to towards the end of the grand story, absolutely. Um, It helps us understand what the Bible is telling us. What's the message in a, you know, in a 2,000-year-old book? What's the message to us today? Like, how are we supposed to process this? The script helps us understand that too. And lastly, it reveals the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel is distorted. Think about this. Jesus said, and this gospel will go out to the end of the, like, to all nations, and then the end will come. So one of the promises or one of the things that has to happen before he returns is the gospel of the kingdom going out to all nations. So the enemy is not, he's going to do two things. Well, I mean, he might do many other things. I don't really know what the enemy's plans are. But two things that I can see, one, prevent people from sharing the gospel. And I think he's done a pretty good job of that. But two, distort what the gospel is. And we see that lots even in Christendom today. Right? And that's why we're supposed to watch out. And scripture tells us to to guard against that. All right. So... Going back to worldview now, we'll finish that off. We started that last week. We'll finish it. And there are themes. So what we're going to try to do is tell the story. I'm just laying foundations the first two weeks. Then we're going to tell the story. And then we're going to address different, there's key components, right? Uh, Key doctrines that will come out of that. There's apologetics that come out of the story. But I want to come to all of those in separate components. Because I want you guys to see the story. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Anyways, let's finish off on our laying foundations, learning to think biblically. And so we'll start here. What is a worldview? It is the way in which you view, you know, uh, reality, essentially what is ultimately real and true about God, humanity, and nature. That is what a worldview is. We all have a worldview. We covered that part last week. Everyone does. We all have answers to life's big questions. And I kind of talked about if we're computers, a worldview is like the software. It's the operating system that tells us how to function. So if we look at the main questions, this is the first thing, the big questions your worldview answers. Now, these are core questions that all of us have answers to. We all do. Even a non-answer is an answer and reveals much about what you believe to be true and real in this world. Right? Because if you think destiny, where we're headed, like, well, I don't really know. I mean, we're headed for heaven, right? Or meaning, what is the meaning of life? I don't really know. We're just going to heaven. So you have part of it kind of right, but you're not sure about what the meaning is to life. That tells you a lot about your belief system and what you believe about salvation and your job here on this earth. So non-answers are answers, and answers are answers. And so there's two things. Remember, we talked about this last week, and there's two ways to look at it. We can... We can just simply, I mean, I could just give you the answers for all of that. I bet you most of us in here, we probably have a high percentage of people here that would answer the questions correctly. I hope. And some of you wouldn't, and that's okay too, right? But, but I bet you there's a high percentage that would answer them correctly. But we have to look at it in two ways, and that's look at it from the bottom, beliefs, right? So what do we believe? But we also need to look at it from the top. What is your life bearing fruit? What does the fruit of your life show? What are your actions and priorities and behaviors? Uh, what do they tell you about what you actually believe the answers are to all of those questions? And so that's a really humbling way of looking at it. And I like that. So we go from both angles to try to help. And essentially, I mean, how do you get it from the head to the heart? You study, you pray, and you obey. Hey, that rhymes. Maybe that's another Lauren thing. Maybe God's going to give me a gift. That's a wonderful thing. All right. <laughs> um, Okay, moving forward here. 
Yeah, we're going to answer all of these questions. So all of those questions, the main ones that I just looked at there, we will highlight them, but I would encourage you already, if you took a picture, if not, that's okay. Um, but they're, on, they're online. You can go look at the notes. But as you're reading your Bible, actually look for those answers. But as you answer each one of these questions, let's just go back there for a second. So as you answer these questions, ask yourself this. If this is true, because the Bible will answer all of those. If this is true, what does it mean for how I should live my life? If this is true, what should I do? Oh, that rhymed again. Sorry. I get pretty pleased with myself very easily. All right, moving forward here. Okay. <sighs> Guard your heart from competing worldviews. Now, I want to be careful on one thing here. Um, <laughs> because we start looking at, okay, you have to have a biblical worldview or you're going to be deceived. So now, instead of just like plugging into the source and just loving the word and reading it and saying, if this is true, what am I supposed to do? Uh, we instead start getting afraid of living in the world. Right? Afraid of media, afraid of reading anything that's secular, afraid of talking to anyone that's not, you know, explicitly glorifying Jesus because we're afraid somehow we're going to be deceived and led astray. That's not a biblical response. We don't live in fear. We live by faith. Right? So that's part of our biblical worldview. And that already tells you a lot about your beliefs. God is sovereign. He loves you. He wants to keep you and keep you close to himself. So let's engage the word instead of being afraid of the culture. Does that make sense? So it's about order. All right. So with that, though, we should actually be watching out for competing worldviews because worldviews don't mix. They do, but you, but you shouldn't do it. Right? We call that syncretism where worldviews blend together. Postmodernism is like that. It's a blend of worldviews like that. Right? That's why there's no true, real truth. But the biblical worldview doesn't mix with any other worldview without distorting the gospel. The biblical worldview doesn't mix with any other worldviews without distorting the gospel. There's always a consequence. You don't mix. Now, we can't escape from the world. We have to live in this world, and we should live in this world. It's good. It's part of creation. We're supposed to help redeem it, partner with God on that. But it's important where we get our truth from. I'll quote a Christian rapper. He's Christian, though. Trip Lee, and he's turned pastor. And he said something. He said, I know when I was growing up, a lot of the views I was listening to, it was a worldview that was not helpful. The world even sold me a false idea of what the good life was. Money, cars, and girls. I wish that people would have helped me to think better about how to interact with that worldview. Interesting thought, right? And so he actually talked about, in another area, uh, he talked about uh, Jay-Z. Jay-Z was not a non-Christian rapper, or not someone I'm not advocating for. But anyways, he's very, very talented anyways, very gifted. And Tripoli was talking about how uh, he engaged with Jay-Z, loved his music, but he would listen to the radio version, right? You listen to the radio version because then you're safe as a Christian because you didn't hear an F word which you shouldn't use. I'm not, I'm not advocating for using an F-bomb either. But I'm saying he thought he was safe because he's listening to the radio clean version. He went on to say that he realizes now that the more dangerous parts of the song and the elements, what it was telling you about life and about what matters, those most dangerous components were all still there. And so again, I'm not telling you to live in fear, but I am telling you to be alert and be wise. It, there is a difference, right? And so we can approach the world that way. We should remember there's always a worldview behind everybody. There always is. 
because we require one to live. All right, so that's really what he was talking about there. I'll skip that now because I already went there. All right, the first one we're going to, competing worldview that we're going to look at is naturalism. And like I said, there's lots that can be done, uh, said on worldviews. We're going to do a quick overview, try to keep it simple, and we'll come back to worldviews at some other time. Uh, But I just want to really lay the foundation of let's be thinking biblically as we go into the story because we want to make sure our assumptions and application are biblical, right? So the first one that's competing, though, is naturalism, uh, often called the modern worldview or the scientific worldview. And essentially, to, to really you know, stifle it down to the bare bones, it says what is seen or material is real, and the unseen, the immaterial, the spiritual, is not true. So their approach to what is true about God is that there is no God. Humanity, humanity's random. Just a random bunch of atoms that bounced around and by chance worked out. So what does that say about your purpose? There is none. There's a whole bunch more we can go into it and implications, but that is true, right? So they believe uh, about the world and creation and nature. What is seen is what is real. Now you might say, well, is that all bad? Well, some of it is bad because it's just blatantly false. But is it bad then that we live in a a real world and we look for scientific explanations for how things work? No, that's not bad. That part is good. Uh, But part of it is bad. So what it leads to, often you'll hear with people that have a naturalistic worldview is this false dichotomy, right? I believe in science. Christians or religions believe in faith. False dichotomy. They're different. They do different things, and I'll get to that in a moment. So often uh, skeptics will, I'll come back to that. Skeptics will say things like, you really believe that God spoke and and everything just kind of happened, right? Like you actually think he just spoke it into being, he said some words and everything just appeared like magic. So you'll hear stuff like that, right? Or God flooded the whole earth. Like, and then you'll hear, hear all sorts of accusations about who he was and about what he did and dead people don't rise from the dead and Jesus wasn't a real person and so on and so forth. There's lots of things that people will say to skeptics on the miracles aren't real and those things don't happen. Blind people don't regain sight. Dead people don't rise from the dead. In fact, you'll even hear some of this naturalism come into the, into the church. And I might have alluded to this a, a couple of weeks ago, um, but with um, I've heard people that that say Brother Yoon, if you remember him uh, from China, he's working with the underground church there, he came here once, Uh, but the heavenly man. But people have charged, even believers, that he's, you know, a false teacher because he claims that he was miraculously set free from prison. You see how a naturalistic worldview can, can change and distort your gospel? You're actually making assumptions on what he's saying, not based on does it contradict scripture, but based on your worldview that what is seen is what is real. So legs don't just heal and people don't just walk out of prison. That's impossible. So you can see how those don't work together. Anyways, science is the pursuit and application of knowledge, the understanding of the natural and social world following a systematic methodology based on evidence. So are we saying that it's bad? No, it's good, it's fun. In fact, I love Google's algorithms. I don't, I'm always a little skeptical that Google always knows what I'm talking about. That part I'm unnerved, a little bit unnerved about. But anyways, that aside, you know, you open your phone on Google and it has all the articles that you know you'll like. So I get lots of stuff on faith and I get lots of stuff on science and psychology. So I actually love science, I love psychology. Why? Because it's the discovery of truth and I think it always points back to God. 
I love that. That's actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. They're not in contra, uh, you know, conflict with each other. What I'm talking about that is bad is often how science is used today in the sense of when people talk about trust the science. Trust the science as though science is personified, even deified. That's where it becomes dangerous. Are you seeing the, the shift? It's no longer just the application or, or the discovery, asking questions and the discovery of truth and how the natural world works. It's no longer that. That's good. That's what science is. It becomes personified or deified as though it becomes God. It is God, and it sets itself at the top, and that is dangerous. Uh, if you'll remember Anthony Fauci, some of you don't say your opinion on him. That's not what the message is about, but because um, there, there'll be people for and against him here. Uh, one of the quotes, though, I found, his, he said, I represent science. Interesting claim, isn't it? Like, what does that mean for a person to represent science? Like, I am science. What does that even mean when you look at the def or the, you know, what the definition of science is? And the article read, the statement has the same moral authority as those who say science is real, suburban lawn signs. In both cases, the word science is being used to cudgel down or shut down a debate. That's all it's being used for, but it's personified to do that, right? So, <clears throat> with that, science is the process of asking questions, developing theories, a natural world, and testing them. That is good. In fact, Christians are the first ones to really delve into the sciences. Why? Because they assumed, because God created. In the beginning, God. And that assumption led them to think that everything must be orderly. So they went out to seek out the orderliness of creation. And what they found was exactly that. It is very ordered and structured and detailed, which shouldn't come as a surprise because God made it and he's like that. The assumption that Christians live by faith and naturalists live by facts is false. Everybody lives by faith. There's not a worldview out there that doesn't require faith. We all have faith. Sci uh, you, you'll hear it. I just read an article yesterday morning. Scientists had discovered something new in the galaxy, whatever. Scientists discovered blank, which is challenging their previously held belief, belief that blank was true. Like, if, if you follow science at all, or psychology, you always see statements like that. And that's a good thing, because science isn't supposed to be God. It's supposed to be the discovery of how the natural world works. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to spark worship and wonder and awe in God, the creator. Anyways, so, Job. Remember this one? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God's challenge to Job when Job was starting to understand exactly what was going on in his life. That was God's uh, uh, counter challenge. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You see, nobody was there. Nobody knows. God knows. He gives us some of the details in Genesis. Doesn't give us all of them. It's not detailed how everything worked. I mean, it's, it is, but it's descriptive. It's true. But it's not a science textbook. I get that. You know, a good one that you should watch, by the way, if you, if you want to watch a, a short movie. I don't know if it's, no, it's not printed. Expelled by Ben Stein. Has anyone watched that in here? There's like nobody who's watched it. You guys should watch it. Okay, I will actually encourage you to watch Expelled. It is not Christian, but what it'll help demonstrate is exactly what this verse says. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And what you're going to find is, because you might hear, like on the media, even in school, you'll often hear 
confident, proc, uh, confident proclamations of what, tr what is true about creation. And what you'll find is Ben Stein goes and interviews the top minds, and you'll realize very quickly that there's a lot of uncertainty about how we got here. A lot. And some of the theories are absurd, if I could say so, myself. So anyways, it's worth the watch. It's short. It's definitely worth the watch. It's not Christian. I'm putting my, my disclaimer on there. But it's very, very interesting. That just shows, and it gives a great example of this. So science is good. Science is not God. Science is good. Science is not God. Are we together on that? Make sense? Science is good. Science is not God. If we get that, we're going to be safe. Next one, science and faith are not opposed. They're different and work together. Okay? Science is the study of what is seen. Faith is the belief in what is unseen. They're different. Right? So even as science is trying to discover things about creation, eventually a lot of their conclusions, because they weren't there, require faith to believe, because it's unseen. You following? So where we differ is actually, we go to Scripture. Romans says, you know, the, the, all of creation testifies to God. We go to creation and say, someone must have made this. They go, and like, so we look for the unseen answer. They look for the seen answer. That's, that's really the difference. But ultimately, we all use both. Here's the Romans 1.20. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Clearly perceived by, by the things that are made so that they're without excuse, right? So that's clear. All right. Both are good. Both are required in their field of play. We just differ on where we go to the answer. We believe in the unseen and the seen. They only believe in the seen. So guard your heart. Guard your heart on two things, I'll tell you. Watch out for your own heart and for others when they always have, a, like now I'm talking Christians. So we know that this exists in the world, right? Outside the church. But now I'm talking inside the church. Inside the church, watch out for when someone always has a natural explanation for what happened in here or what's happening in believers' lives here, right? There always has to be a natural because God doesn't work that way anymore. It doesn't work that way. Or, you know, even the miracles, right? Some will say the miracles all have natural explanations. I've heard that before. I've watched a discovery show on it. Be careful with that line of thinking. And it's not to say that there's never any natural explanations. I'm not saying that. But I am saying watch out for that. Guard your heart against that. We believe with the biblical worldview, we believe in the, in the seen and the unseen. Right. Both are valid and real. Okay, that's the first one. Second one to guard your heart on is uh, watch out for believers, believers and yourself when your priorities reflect that all that matters is this world and this life. Because if all that matters is this life, live your best life now, just be a good person. There's so many questions in here. We don't know. Don't worry about it. Just live a good life now. Be careful about that line of thinking. Be careful because it can lead to a ditch and often betrays a more of a naturalistic type of worldview. So you begin to live just for this world and this world alone. All right? So that's what you got to watch out for. Um, you know, skeptics have challenged, by the way, lots of things in here. And they still are. But things from David, they used to think David wasn't a real person. Pilate wasn't a real person. Jesus wasn't a real person. Um, then there's been like uh, cities and civilizations that they didn't think they were at the wrong time period. The Bible was wrong on its historicity. The Bible was wrong on characters. There's been lots of skeptics. But over the years, there's been a lot of discoveries that have then shown that the skeptics were actually wrong. And oh, okay, now we actually found out King David was a real person. 
Oh, we actually found out those kingdoms did go to war because we found the other side. Yeah, we actually found that out. Oh, Pilate isn't a real person. He is. And Jesus is a real person. So we'll switch the attack from, you know, was he real to was he God? Um, and so on and so forth. So the point is, and I'll tell you another one that there is skepticism on. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we all believe that in here, and, you would, and I've talked about it here before, you know, 1929-ish, I think is, no, I don't actually know, I think I have it written down, is when Hubble, yeah, that's like 100 years ago, Hubble discovers the universe expanding, and then within 20 years, another guy, Lamitre, got involved, and, and they determined the Big Bang, and that the universe was finite, not infinite. Okay, what's important to know about that, though, is when you look at, people will often say, the creation myth in here, right, uh, my kids actually had a school project where they had to write down, um, do a school project on different creation myths. And the Bible is in there, like creation stories. Like, it's just funny how it's all represented, right? Because they're not doing about, you know, the scientific or evolution. But this one, there's a lot of skepticism on. But anyways, that aside, that aside, the Bible creation myth is just like all the other ones. No, they're not. They're actually very different. In fact, one of the key differences is this line right there. In the beginning, God. If you go back 100 years, now go back into history with sciences and with religion, what you'll find is a common assumption. The universe was eternal. Which, by the way, begs the question, I thought we'd have a problem with there being an eternal God. You know, it's funny that a lot of people that have a problem with the eternal God have no problem with considering that the universe would be eternal. <laughs> Isn't that funny how that works? We just don't like certain eternal things, <laughs> like God. But, uh, but things are fine. But anyways, until 100 years ago, in the beginning God created was revolutionary. Now it's just assumed. But that's just another one of those things that has been there for 4,000 years. That's when that one was written. For 4,000 years, the Bible had it right, and no one else did. My only point with that is, is, is this. At some point when there's a conflict between what I see and what I read, are we as believers going to default to what we read? Like, how many times does the Bible need to be proven true, or do we need to see God working before we begin to default to his truth over what we hear from the world? That's just a question to think about. Anyways, Hebrews 11, verse 3. Did I put it on there? I forgot to highlight it in here. Um, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by God. That's what is seen. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So there you see how the seen and the unseen work together by faith. That's how we have faith. We know that what is seen was created by things that are unseen. All right, that's the first one to watch out for, naturalism. And I'll come back to redeem that at the end. Uh, second one is transcendentalism. And really what I want you to remember is the Greek dualism. That's really the one that we're fighting against the most here. And I've picked on that lots over the years and so have other uh, pastors that have spoken up front. But essentially... Now, there's lots of different worldviews and religions that fit in here, okay? But this is going down to the bare bones basics on the difference, differences. What they believe is material world is bad, spiritual world, unseen world is good. That's the simpleness, right? So material world, the flesh, what's here? This is all bad. It's all corrupt. 
and the unseen in the spiritual world is good. That's what is good, okay? So you'll see these ideas kind of played out all over the place. In fact, even in common movies, you'll see them. Uh, things like, I did mention Star Wars, I think, last week. Star Wars, you'll totally see transcendentalism and pantheism in there, which is, this, which is a little bit, it's an offshoot. But what, what do you see there is you see these characters that are all governed by this impersonal, universal thing called the Force. Right? And what people are trying to do then is connect outwardly to this universal thing that transcends everything, the real world. That's transcendentalism. Dualism has that same effect, right? So the real world, the real good thing is the force. All the bad stuff and the corrupt stuff is here in the physical realm. And so that has invaded Christianity and the world in lots of different ways. So this is the danger with that in the church. Christians compartmentalize their lives into categories, spiritual, non-spiritual. We do it all the time. I do it. Spiritual, non-spiritual. I have spiritual things that I do. Then I have non-spiritual things that I do. That's dualistic thinking. It's completely intertwined with our worldview. And it's all over our world. That's how Christians have believed for a lot of years uh, since Greek philosophy was kind of introduced in around the 380-ish area. So one of the results of that is why bother engaging in the culture? You can go both ways, but... Why bother engaging with the culture? It's all going to hell anyways. It's all going to be destroyed, right? You just get saved, believe in Jesus. One day your soul's going to go be with him in heaven. Do you see the emphasis there? Don't worry about here. Just, just believe, and one day you're going to go away into this other place and just be with him in heaven. That's actually not the hope. The hope includes him returning. One day he's going to return and establish his kingdom on the earth, and we'll get to that later. But that's actually there. So uh, if you look at historically when dualism was introduced, it actually caused a massive shift in the priorities of how Christians were living on the earth. So before dualism, Christians were known for, remember we've talked about this in the plague, they were out there helping people and uh, even risking their own lives, but they were bringing people into their home, taking care of them when everyone else was kind of casting out sick people into the streets. Christians were doing that. They were all over, helping the widows, helping the poor, being forces of good wherever they went, standing for truth, even though they were thrown into the lion's den many times into arenas and killed in horrific ways. They just couldn't help it. They engaged culture. They engaged the world. They stood for truth. They loved ferociously. They emulated their teacher, Jesus. Enter dualism. Now it was a shift where now they stopped emphasizing those things and they started moving away to kind of separate yourself from the world and focus primarily on the disciplines. Now, don't hear, hear what I am saying and not what I'm not saying. Focusing on disciplines is what? Good or bad? Good. Yeah, there we go. Good. Focusing only on disciplines to the neglect of living your life here and the purpose for which God has you here for is bad. So it's switched from a holistic to really just focusing on the fasting and living alone and being separate and often denying things like marriage and denying other things like that, okay? So that was the big shift with transcendentalism or dualism entering into the church. So the key here would be avoid the pendulum swing. And I've seen this. This would be danger number one here. Uh, danger number one, flip from dualism to naturalism. I've watched this. So we go from one extreme, which is like, what does it mean to be spiritual and successful in God's eyes? Pray more, read more of the Bible, fast more, and, you know, fast from everything physical. I just need to do more of those things, and then I'll be spiritual. Now, those things are good. Don't stop doing that. I'll come just in a moment. But you keep trying to do more of those things, but you're neglecting the other parts of your life. 
you actually, it doesn't work. So then sometimes you'll watch people shift over from that and say, okay, enough of that. That doesn't even work. Now we'll just switch over and just live a good life now. So don't worry about all that stuff. That stuff, I mean, do what you can, whatever. But just focus on being a good person and live a good life now. So it's a pendulum. We go from one to the other. So what we need to find is ourselves in the middle, right? Well, I mean the middle, in something better. But it's the middle where we are, we should seek to pray without ceasing. That's biblical. But it's not like we go from the one side of how many hours do I need to spend in prayer a day to be spiritual? You know, it's not about do you give one hour or 30 minutes. It's not about that. I say that's too low of a bar on both accounts. Our bar is give your life to God 24-7. Every aspect of your life belongs to him. It's not just one part. It's both. So we seek to know him in the word. We study the scriptures. We memorize the word. We pray without ceasing. We're commanded to. We give thanks in all circumstances. Absolutely yes. And we go out, we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. With the whole thing. Then we love our neighbors as ourselves, And we seek to engage culture. And we seek to redeem and do all things for the glory of God. It's both. Make sense? So how many hours do we need to give him a day to be spiritual? 24 hours, seven days a week. That's the goal. And when you find you're holding on, you're pulling back, we repent from that, give it all back to God, to whom it belongs anyways, and then we continue living our whole lives for him. The whole thing is about him. Now that needs some definition because I know a worldview and all that kind of stuff, but we'll get to that at some other time. All right, that's danger number one. Uh, distorts the gospel, leads to escapism, Christianity. Um, totally, that's a real thing. Our gospel, if you'll go, that's not right. No, it's all good. Uh, danger number three, it leaves Christians disengaged from the, the world and culture. Essentially on this one here, the gospel needs to kind of point, we always just point to the one thing, Jesus and the cross. That's the climax of the gospel, Jesus and the cross. Okay, climax, hear me out here, is the restoration of all things. Second coming of Christ. That's the climax. No one got upset. Okay, that's good. All right, this is a great crowd. The, the gospel we preach is the whole thing. It's the whole thing. And the cross is monumental, absolutely monumental. Jesus came, inaugurated the new covenant. He started it. He started it. He made the way that only he could make. So I'm not diminishing the cross. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's not the climax. The climax is coming. He's going to return and establish a kingdom, a physical kingdom on the earth. That's the climax. That's what we're living for. That's where the hope is. So that's, we just have to get that right or we end up living for the wrong thing. Um, so that's a good thing. Anyhow, the new covenant has been inaugurated. It was already told about, we'll get to that yet, but it's been inaugurated. It gets sealed we see the full fulfillment of it upon the second coming of Christ. That's when it's sealed and fulfilled. It's going to be wonderful. All right. Uh, and last one, it leaves Christians disengaged from world and culture. That's dangerous. Um, so, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. This is Paul. Isn't that interesting? Paul did not struggle with a dualistic worldview that thought when you pray or read the word, do so for the glory of God. He said, even when you do mundane things like eat and drink, do all, including the prayer and the word, do all for the glory of God. What a wonderful question that could be as we go home today or in our devotions or as we start a new day. Lord, how can I use my regular day, my task list, how can I use this to glorify you? 
What a wonderful thing to answer and theme to guide our lives. How can I glorify you today as I, as I vacuum, as I work, as I sell something, as I help someone, as I rest? How can I glorify you? All right. So the truth Give God everything, 24-7. Seek to love him with your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbors. Study scripture. Pray without ceasing. Engage culture in the world. And in all things, give thanks to God. That's very, very simplified, but I had a lot of things on there. We could just continue to add. <laughs> I had to shorten it, right? All right. Lastly here, and this is where we're going to end for today. And this is, oh, I'll just, this is a very, very quick one here. The first one, immaterial. And then we have material. Immaterial is not real. And the material and physical is real. Which worldview is that? Naturalism, dualism, or biblical? Naturalism. Yep, you got it right. Second one, immaterial, spiritual is real. Material, physical, not real or bad. Which one's that? Yep, that's the, that would be the transcendentalism or dualism. Now we're going to go on to this last one here. Immaterial, spiritual, real. Material and physical, real. Both created good. Both marred by sin and the curse. And so enter, read the story with a biblical worldview. And, uh, and this is where I love to spend most of our time. And, and what I really want to cap, you know, capture with this one here, and by the way, I, I took that from Joel, this one I took from Joel Richardson, uh, which I did ask for permission. I kind of changed it a little bit. But anyways, what I like about this is you'll find things in the naturalistic worldview that are very appealing, things in transcendentalism or dualism that are very appealing. Why? Because both of them have elements of truth and deception. You see how that works? Because ours is real on both. We believe in the unseen and the seen. So yeah, they both encapsulate things that draw people in because there is truth in both. But it's not the truth. It's not the truth, and that's what we are looking for now. So reading the Bible with a biblical worldview, learning to think biblically is what we're getting at, to renew the mind. How do we do that? So how do I get that? Well, the simple answer is I just give you all the right answers to those eight questions we talked about before, and now you have nothing to worry about, right? No, that is not the way it works, right? A biblical worldview comes from the Bible, period, period. Uh, emphasis on the extra period, period. There is no other way to get it. You want it? Get into the Word. Plug into the right software, okay? A biblical worldview is more than having the right answers. It requires you to do something. So you study, you pray, and you obey. That is how we move it from the head to the heart. And by the way, that's all the truths that you're living out we're born that way. Even the deceptive ones like we talked about with inner healing, right? You hear a lie and it gets whispered into here and then you begin to live that out and it gets ingrained into your heart. Same as when we're developing a biblical worldview. We begin to read here and study what does the Bible say and we ask ourselves, if this is true, then what must I do? And all of that is fueled by a foundation of prayer. We pray, we study, we obey. That's a very, very simplistic way of looking at it, but that's what I'm going to leave you with. Okay. <sighs> Biblical worldview. God created what was seen and unseen. Yep. Both are real. Both are good. We're good. Both were corrupted by sin. God has promised to redeem and restore all creation, including the heavens and the earth. That is very, very simplistic. Very, very simplistic answer to the difference between the biblical worldview and these other two that I talked about. That's what we believe. So there is corruption in both. But it's very, very important that we actually, that we see that both are real. 
Because some will think, well, what we, this is real, and that's kind of like spiritual. I can't understand it. It's not really there. But like heaven is this like spacey place that isn't physical. It is physical, and it's spiritual. And the earth is physical, and it's spiritual. Read this. Look at this. Genesis 1 verse 9. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. So Moses here, when he's writing Genesis, has the assumption, inspired by God, that the heavens and the earth were created, and the first layer of heavens, there's three that the Bible talks about, were the ones that we see when we go outside. We just look up, and we look at the heavens. You following? That's physical. You say, that's physical, so it's not spiritual? No, I'm not saying one or the other. I'm saying both and. We're following both and, both physical, both spiritual. Uh, Ephesians 6, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you don't understand this, we read the heavenly places and we get thrown off. We're like, there's evil in the heavenly places? <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about in the redeemed heaven, right? But in the heavenly places, there's a physical and spiritual component to this. There are evil in the, in the second realm of heaven. That's where Satan and his demons kind of line up. Ephesians 2.2. 2. You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Here it talks about the air that we breathe. There's a prince, Satan, that's kind of in charge of the power of the air. Spiritual, working with physical. 2 Corinthians 12, 2-3. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And look at Paul's writing. Whether in the body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. So he assumed there's a third heaven now where God resides. And he was caught up there. And he's not even sure if he was caught up there physically or spiritually. He wasn't totally sure. But clearly he had a belief that it could be both. One or the other. Right? I'm just tracking on there. Physical earth. Circle represents creation, all created things. What we see in the Bible is at least three different levels of heaven described that are all created in the physical realm. All have spiritual components. All have physical components. Now what are the arrows going up and down? Well, Read this, Acts 1, 9 to 11. I'm just challenging us, by the way. Remember we said biblical worldview, but we're talking about how do we think biblically? How did, they, how, did, how did the early Christians and Jews read this? What were they thinking? Okay, well, as they're looking, he was lifted up, and a cloud, that's important, a cloud took him out of their sight, and behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Why? Jesus had just gone up physically, gone up, up into the sky. Isn't that interesting? Because we think about, well, Jesus left the earth and went to heaven. So what did he do? He just kind of appeared. Like he just he vanished in plain sight, right? That's kind of how we think of these things. We think dualistically. No, no. He went up on a cloud in their sight, up. So heaven's being up. Strangely, I'm not saying, by the way, that it's exactly like this, because we know there's up all the way around heaven. So please forgive the limitations of this diagram. Um, it's not perfect. I'm just trying to challenge the way we think so that as we go through the story, we begin to dream and hope about the things that are actually written in here and not just write it off because it doesn't make sense. It's physical, it's spiritual, it's real. All right, and it says, he will come the same way that you saw him go into heaven. That's what the angel said. So Jesus you saw go up on a cloud is coming down from heaven also on a cloud. Look at this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Revelations 1 verse 7. Is that not fascinating? That's the hope, right? He left. 
he inaugurated, he sent the Spirit as a down payment. We're getting little pieces of it. When he comes back, we get the new heart. We get the new Spirit. We get the ability to obey him and love him for all eternity. It's going to be wonderful. The hope is in the second coming. That's the hope. That's the climax. If you get nothing else out of what I'm babbling about, please get that. Because that's exciting. And our job here is to bring as many people along with us towards that hope. And with that, remember, he's going to redeem people. He's also going to redeem the heavenlies because they've been corrupted by sin too. And he's going to redeem the natural world, which has also been corrupted. Romans talks about that, right? So our job is to help him redeem all things as we move towards the absolute climax. Redeem things in the natural, redeem humanity. That's our job. Simple but impossible without Jesus. He is returning physically on a cloud. That's why we changed it to a picture of him on a cloud. And I know that's a misrepresentation of Jesus. But anyways, he's coming back on a physical cloud. We are going to see him on a physical cloud. That, it'll look way better than that. I mean, when it happened, when the glory of God fell in the temple in the Old Testament, there was like flashes of lightning and peeling thunder, and it was terrifying. I imagine it'll be more similar to exactly like that. That's not very terrifying. It's going to probably be way more like the Old Testament. It's going to be incredible, absolutely incredible, awe-inspiring, and will probably leave most of us flat on our faces. You know where John had to have Jesus say, fear not, you can get up, it's me. And we'll say, okay, all right. You're the one we love. Anyways, that is exciting to me, and that is the gospel. So we're going to close at this. Heaven and earth are going to become one. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as the bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Bow your heads with me. I want to pray. Lord, if there is anything that we have been living for where our priorities have reflected that we're not living for the hope, the hope that you've given us, we just turn from that right now and we give our entire lives to you. Lord, we're not perfect. We recognize that. We're sinful. We're prideful. We're easily deceived. We easily make things about us. Thank you, Lord, that despite our brokenness and sinfulness, that you died for us while we were like that, and you see something in us that you want to redeem. You've said we are valuable to you. We are created in your image. You offer us salvation, but you also offer us partnership that, that you will actually work through us and allow us to be a part of your redemptive plan in history is, is mind-blowing. You want to give us purpose and value and meaning in life. And so, Lord, we turn to you wholeheartedly. We give you what is yours, our lives and everything in it. The spiritual, the non-spiritual, we realize it's all both. We give our lives to you, our rest times, our relationships, our families, our fun stuff that we love to do, our jobs, our task list, our quiet times, our prayer, our hearts. May they be all yours, used for the honor and glory of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.